Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. And here's the walking encyclopedia of emergency medicine, Dr. Walter Himmel. And if I arrive at a shift and one of my colleagues says, this person's getting two units of blood, I've got to control myself because the first thing I want to say is, really? And the huge researcher in transfusion medicine and the head of transfusion medicine at Sunnybrook Hospital, Dr. Jeannie Callum. Uh, teach residents to try and fight back against the urge to transfuse 100% of patients whose hemoglobin levels are below 70 because some of them just don't need it. And last but not least, Dr. Yulia Lin, another transfusion guru and researcher from Sunnybrook Hospital. With this podcast, we're actually influencing eMERGE docs to start considering being part of that change. So this really is sort of a revolutionary idea we're talking about here. During the recording of episode 36 on transfusions, anticoagulants, and bleeding with Dr. Callum, Dr. Katerina Pavensky, and Dr. Himmel, Dr. Callum introduced the idea of giving IV iron as a substitute for red cell transfusions in the ED. Now, we hadn't planned on covering that topic, and so when I heard this, I turned to Walter, and I noticed that his jaw was on the floor, as was mine. You see... We'd never heard of anyone ever giving IV iron in the ED, ever. And Walter's been practicing for more than 30 years. This seemed like a revolutionary idea to us. Then I started receiving emails from EM Cases listeners who were equally amazed at what seemed like a new discovery for emergency providers. We then had the pleasure and honor of having Dr. Callum give a fantastic talk on the topic at our citywide EM Grand Rounds at U of T, and there too, the audience was floored. And so this is how this podcast was born. I felt that we had to let EM providers know about this potentially life-saving, blood-sparing, rational approach to fixing hemoglobin levels in the emergency department. The thing is, for years we've been transfusing red cells in the ED to patients who actually don't need them. That's right. In fact, a study looking at trends in transfusion practice in the ED found that about one-third of transfusions given were deemed totally inappropriate. As we explained in previous EM Cases episodes, there have been a whole slew of articles in the literature over the last few years that have shown that outcomes with lower hemoglobin thresholds like 70 for transfusing ICU patients, patients in septic shock, patients with GI bleeds, etc., are similar to the outcomes with higher traditional hemoglobin levels of 90 or 100. We're simply transfusing blood way too much. The American Association of Blood Banks, in conjunction with the American Board of Internal Medicine's Choosing Wisely campaign, as one of its five statements on overuse of procedures stated, don't transfuse iron deficiency without hemodynamic instability. So our goal in this podcast is first to give you an understanding of why it's important to avoid red cell transfusions in certain situations, why IV iron is sometimes a better option in a significant subset of anemic patients in the ED, and the practicalities of exactly how to administer IV iron. I've started giving IV iron in my ED practice. Let's see if you'll consider changing your practice after hearing what Dr. Himmel, Dr. Lin, and Dr. Callum have to say about iron treatment as a substitute for red cell transfusions in the ED. Welcome, Dr. Himmel. Good morning. I'm thrilled to be here today. It's awesome, Walter. You know, every time I introduce you, you're always thrilled. But today I'm extremely thrilled. And why is that? Because this topic is life-changing. Agreed. And Dr. Callum, welcome back to Emergency Medicine Cases. Thank you. Great to be back. Great to have you. And we have a new guest expert on Emergency Medicine Cases, uh, Dr. Yulia Lin. Welcome, Dr. Lin. Thanks, Anton. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Actually, Yulia, could you just tell us a little bit about your professional background for the audience? So I'm a hematologist, but my main area of specialty is in transfusion medicine. And I work at Sunnybrook with Jeannie in the office next door. And we work together quite a bit on promoting appropriate transfusion practices in all of our patients at Sunnybrook. So let's jump into case number one. A 49-year-old woman who works as a yoga instructor is sent into the ED by her family doctor with a note stating, quote, 
severe menorrhagia times six months, hemoglobin 57, please transfuse. On further history, you discover that she's an otherwise healthy woman who's been increasingly fatigued with decreased exercise tolerance over the past few months, as well as having increasingly irregular, heavy periods, having to change tampons about every two hours in the last few days. Her gynecologic history is otherwise unremarkable. There's no history of dizziness or syncope. Her vital signs are within normal limits. She asks you how long it'll take to get the transfusion. So Dr. Himmel, let's start with this. We've got someone with a hemoglobin of 57. She's otherwise healthy. Is a hemoglobin of 57 in an otherwise healthy person safe? Are these people at risk for bad outcomes? I guess the real question is, uh, hemoglobin 57, can the patient do well? And I would say if the patient's healthy, free from heart disease, and relatively young, and relatively young might mean 50 or 55 easily this day and age, the patient will often do well without blood and just iron if we're dealing with iron deficiency anemia. One of the most amazing studies that I've read, and this study was frightening if not shocking, was published about uh, 20 years ago in JAMA. This study involved 30 patients, 10 were patients in a hospital age 50 on the average, and 20 were volunteers age 22. These patients had 500 cc's of blood withdrawn and plasma injected, and 500 cc's of blood withdrawn and plasma injected. Over two hours, their hemoglobin was lowered from 133 to 50 grams per liter. The ethics board must have had a field day with that one. It w- I don't think it would happen today. So they measured their heart rate, cardiac output, oxygen consumption, and oxygen delivery. So these were patients who were acutely bled and then volume replaced with their own plasma or with albumin. What do they find? Unbelievable. The patients did well. They didn't develop angina. They didn't become hypotensive. Their heart rates went up from 60 to 90. Their cardiac output increased. Their oxygen consumption actually increased. They did fine. So clearly in a very fit person who is basically volume maintained, who's hemodynamically stable, a hemoglobin of 50 to 55, even in the acute phase, can be well tolerated. Well, so how does that translate to the chronic anemic then? I think the chronic anemic has even more advantages if it's a healthy individual. The chronic anemic has hemoglobin, which is adjusted. Patients who are chronically anemic can cope even better because of hemoglobin oxygen association curve changes and they release oxygen more readily. It's not so much about the hemoglobin, it's about oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. And if your hemoglobin gets smart, you can do well with less hemoglobin. So just to be clear, we're talking about healthy people here, acutely and chronically, if their hemoglobin drops quite low down into the 50s, they can adapt very easily. Maybe even 49, 48, or 47. Okay, we'll get into some thresholds and cutoffs a little bit later in the podcast. Dr. Callum, based on what Dr. Himmel just said about patients with chronic iron deficiency anemia who are otherwise healthy, we know that they're not at risk for any sort of badness, even if their hemoglobin is 50. How would you manage this patient, this yoga instructor with a hemoglobin of 57, who's come in with their family doctor, sort of insisting that you transfuse them? Okay. So I think probably the best data that reassures me that I don't need to transfuse this patient came from a study called the WOMB trial. This trial was done in 37 Dutch hospitals. They enrolled 520 women who had acute anemia and their hemoglobin had fallen because of complications postpartum, postpartum bleeding, very low hemoglobins um, after delivery. These women had hemoglobins between 48 and 79. So as low as 48 And compared to the classical randomized trial where you randomize people to one trigger versus another trigger, in this trial, they randomized women to no transfusion versus a transfusion. In the group that got randomized to the no transfusion, they were able to get blood, but only if something bad happened. They got hemodynamic instability, tachycardia, bad symptoms. So if you compare the two groups, the group that got transfused got 517 units of blood compared to only 88 in the other group. Now, when they looked at outcomes in these patients, there really was absolutely no difference. No difference in recovery of the hemoglobin, 
hemoglobins at six weeks, fatigue scores, with the exception of a non-clinically significant difference in fatigue score at the seven-day mark. So really, that study really reassures me that this is safe. Similar to what Walter stated, there's a huge difference with chronic anemia. In my mind, the key physiologic difference is the shift in the oxygen dissociation curve with chronic but not acute anemia. And this is facilitated by a change in the 2,3 DPG level, allowing the red cells to be less selfish and offload their oxygen. So when I see a chronically low hemoglobin, and I know it's chronic because it takes a long time, really months for that MCB to get low. So I've got the evidence that this is slow onset. I consider the hemoglobin, say a 50, is physiologically much higher than it appears. So similar to that side mirror on your car that says objects are closer than they appear, hemoglobin is better than it appears. So I uh, teach residents to try and fight back against the urge to transfuse 100% of patients whose hemoglobin levels are below 70, because some of them just don't need it. Baby, don't you do it. So this woman is a classic example of a presentation of severe iron deficiency anemia. The history is so significant for ongoing chronic bleeding that I would feel comfortable in treating this patient for iron deficiency anemia without transfusion. So even though this patient has a decreased exercise tolerance, she's currently asymptomatic at rest and with regular activity. In this setting, I would recommend intravenous iron in the eMERGE and oral iron on discharge. Okay, and we'll get into exactly how to do that a little bit later in the podcast. Dr. Lin, in episode 36, we declared that we should think of blood as a liquid transplant, and as such, should only be used when necessary. In particular, we reviewed the risks of red cell transfusions. The 1 in 700 chance of TACO, that's transfusion-associated circulatory overload, the 1 in 10,000 chance of trolley, transfusion-related lung injury, the 1 in 40,000 chance of an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction. We talked about alloimmunization leading to problems with future pregnancies and organ transplants. So, Dr. Lin, in addition to anaphylaxis and the rare HIV and hepatitis risk associated with red blood cell transfusions, what are the risks of intravenous iron by comparison? So, intravenous iron is generally well-tolerated. However, like any drug, some patients can have side effects. The most serious side effect that people often worry about are life-threatening allergic reactions. And I think these did occur with some of the older formulations that we had, like iron dextran. But nowadays, we actually have better formulations, for example, iron sucrose, which have been used for the last 10 to 15 years with much fewer reactions. So for example, in FDA reports, the cases have been reported of life-threatening reactions to be less than one in a million. So the next most serious side effect that I tell patients about is hypotension. And in fact, this occurs in about 1% to 2% of patients. I often tell patients that we're going to watch them for about a half an hour after their infusion. So that drives home the point of monitoring these patients in the emergency department carefully, um, making sure the nurses understand that uh, hypotension is probably the most likely side effect if anything does happen. That's right. Other more common side effects include things like joint aches, muscle cramps, headache, chest discomfort, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Those are the side effects we have with every patient in the emergency department just coming into the emergency department, actually. (laughs) Yeah, and these are actually quite rare, even in my experience. If they do have some of these symptoms, they generally resolve within 12 to 24 hours after the infusion. Overall, I think that the risks with ivory iron are much lower than with blood transfusion. And especially when you start to think about women of childbearing age, intravenous iron avoids the risks of alloimmunization. Can you just quickly explain to our listeners what the bottom line problem with alloimmunization is? So alloimmunization means the development of alloantibodies to red blood cells, and uh, patients are exposed to red blood cells through either transfusion or pregnancy. The impact on women of childbearing age over time is that if they develop an alloantibody, this can in fact cross the placenta and affect future pregnancies. So we'd be concerned about complications such as hemolytic disease of the newborn in women who have received previous transfusion. Wow. So hemolytic disease of the newborn, that's serious stuff. And that can actually be prevented by not giving red cell transfusions to women of childbearing age who don't need them. 
That's right. I think traditionally we've not really thought about that as a potential complication, and I think when we're thinking about patients who are usually have iron deficiency anemia, often they are women of childbearing age, and I think this is something that we really do need to think twice before ordering a blood transfusion. You are changing someone's immune system for life by giving them a product they do not need. This is a CT scan of hematology. In the 1990s, in the early 21st century, the kid bopped her head, they got a CT scan. What are we being told now? You are inducing cancer of the brain. You are inducing thyroid cancer. You're causing learning disabilities. Stop getting CT scans you don't need in kids. This is a new insight. You changed a child forever. You cannot take away radiation. When you give somebody HLA antigens, when you inject somebody with non-ABO red cell antigens, and there's 20 or 30 common ones, you've exposed them to antigens that will change your immune system forever. 20 or 30 years later, they may be difficult to match for blood transfusions. They may be refractory to platelets if you need them. If they ever require organ transplant, the HLA antigens you gave them 20 or 30 years before unnecessarily make them unmatchable. When you give somebody human tissue, living human tissue called blood, you've changed them forever. Packed red blood cells are not a delivery system for iron. That was so good. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm like, oh. You're hired, man. I think a really important thing that you need to remember is you have to have a conversation with young women before you transfuse them. They need to be aware that this could be a long-term complication. And some patients come into the emergency department, their family doctors told them they're going to get a blood transfusion. And as a result, they want a blood transfusion. And this is one of the things that will kind of temper their enthusiasm about having a blood transfusion and help them make the right decision. Now, let's face it, giving red blood cells in North America and getting married are very similar. These events occur far too often with far too many side effects, short-term, long-term, and sometimes it's lethal. You've got to tell your patients, I'm giving you a living tissue. We're changing the immune system forever. This is profound. That's the side effect to discuss. Nobody ever talks about that. The few patients I discuss this with, particularly women under 40, got the point real quick. They were happy not to get the blood. The American Society of Anesthesiologists in 2013 said that we shouldn't be giving red blood cell transfusions in young healthy patients without ongoing blood loss and a hemoglobin of 60 or more, unless they're symptomatic or hemodynamically unstable. So how do you decide exactly what they mean by ongoing blood loss and symptomatic? For example, our patient with menorrhagia here sort of has ongoing blood loss because she's having menorrhagia and she's complaining of fatigue as well as exercise intolerance. So does that mean that she should receive a transfusion? How do you decide how symptomatic is symptomatic and what kind of ongoing blood loss are we talking about that should trigger a red cell transfusion? So I guess the bottom line when you're seeing this patient in the emergency department is to look for the symptoms, specifically chest pain, shortness of breath, presyncope, lightheadedness, and then vital signs, so hypotension and tachycardia. Great. Simple. So those patients who just aren't having a good day or they feel fatigue or they can't run their usual five-kilometer run like they usually do, that's not considered symptomatic. That's not a trigger for red cell transfusions. Um, and in terms of ongoing blood loss, so someone who's having ongoing menorrhagia, does that mean they need a red cell transfusion? Or, you know, obviously someone who's having a massive GI bleed, who's pouring blood over both sides of the stretcher, that's ongoing blood loss. But how do you decide which patients have true ongoing blood loss enough to trigger a transfusion? Okay, so if I think for this, there's really no right answer. You have to look at everything combined, how fast it's come on. How much blood loss? What are the hemodynamic signs and symptoms of the patient? And how fast you're going to be able to get that hemoglobin up with intravenous iron and oral iron in your decision about does this patient need a transfusion at all? And if yes, how many units do they need? The best treatment for ongoing blood loss is to treat the ongoing blood loss, gastroscopy, colonoscopy, nasal packing, 
Tranosamic acid, treat the cause of the bleeding. The person's losing enough blood, 10 cc's a minute, or their hemoglobin is going to drop 20 grams per liter in the next two or three hours, that's ongoing blood loss. If they're losing 10 mils an hour or 10 mils every two hours, you can be a bit more circumspect about things. If you're not sure, wait for a couple hours and see what happens. Admit the person overnight and reevaluate. So let's say you've decided in this patient who does not need a red cell transfusion that instead you want to give intravenous iron. What are the indications for giving intravenous iron over oral iron or over a red cell transfusion? So there are lots of reasons why you might choose intravenous iron on top of oral iron for managing your patient. Sometimes oral iron is not well tolerated, although I would have to say that that's pretty uncommon if you coach somebody properly on how to take oral iron. Sometimes the oral iron just doesn't get absorbed. Sometimes it's because part of their GI tract has been missing, something such as a gastric bypass surgery. Their gut is inflamed, such as celiac disease or gastritis, or patients that have what we call a high hepcidin level. And we see that in infection or inflammation. And this high hepcidin level that comes with inflammation blocks iron absorption from the gut. Sometimes oral iron is just not effective. The rate of bleeding is just too fast for the oral iron to keep up with. So for those patients who are on oral iron already at home, let's say this woman was put on oral iron by her family doctor, but despite that, her hemoglobin is still 57. Absolutely. If she's compliant with her oral iron, she's clearly failed it. Either it's not being absorbed fast enough or her rate of blood loss is greater than her ability to absorb oral iron. Also, if you have severe anemia, hemoglobin's under 90, particularly in the setting of ongoing bleeding, you don't want it to drop further because now you're threatening she's going to need a red cell transfusion. Those are the patients where you want to intervene now, fast, early to get the hemoglobin back up. Also, sometimes you have time pressure. That patient comes into the eMERGE and the reason for the bleeding is that they have a colorectal cancer and they're going to have to go to the operating room for a resection in the next two to four weeks. You don't want to have their surgery delayed because of profound anemia. You want it up in time so that they have a good surgical outcome. So those are a few of the indications for IV iron. You might want to just rewind that and review that again. Next, Dr. Callum is going to talk about contraindications to IV iron. In terms of contraindications, really the only contraindication is active infection. We know that iron is a really good microbial nutrient and helps bacteria grow. So if someone has ongoing uncontrolled sepsis, we hold back and we don't give the intravenous iron until the infection is controlled and they're stable on antibiotics. That's fascinating. I had no idea that iron had anything to do with bacteria. And that's a good point because we see a lot of septic patients in the emergency department. And the TRIST trial just showed that we shouldn't be transfusing most of the patients until they're below 70 So I guess for those patients who are in septic shock, who have a hemoglobin of 73, we shouldn't be giving them red cells nor iron. We should just let them ride and do all the other great things that we do for septic patients. Correct. And I don't think there's very much overlap between the iron deficiency population and an infectious population. It's very uncommon to see those two things together. I just think it's important to remember but IV iron is not an alternative to oral iron. This is a bit like the octoplex vitamin K issue with the high INRs. You don't give prothrombin complex concentrates and forget about the vitamin K. You do both. When you give someone IV iron, it's because they need so much iron, they can't possibly get it by getting PO iron. It's always followed with oral iron, often for two, three, four, five, six months or more. That segues perfectly into the practicalities of actually giving the IV iron and giving the oral iron. Dr. Lin, what are the options in terms of giving IV iron? How fast do you give it? What are the dosages you use? How should patients be monitored? When our listeners are in the emergency department ready to give this order, how do they do it? So there are a number of intravenous iron formulations available both in Canada and the U.S. I think the main one that we typically use is iron sucrose, also called venifer. 
Denifer's V-E-N-O-F-E-R? That's correct. Okay. So typically, we would order a dose of 300 milligrams in 250 mils of normal saline, and we infuse that over two hours. As I've said before, the most significant reaction is anaphylaxis. So we recommend as well that um, after the infusion for about a half an hour, as we've talked about before, making sure that there's appropriate monitoring for those patients. We do have other formulations, for example, ferramoxetol, and also called Farahim. So that's F-E-R-A-H-E-M-E. And this has the advantage of being able to deliver a higher dose. So typically the dose is 510 milligrams, um, which can be delivered over 15 to 60 minutes. And I know that we've used this in our eMERGE because it's been faster and we can deliver a higher dose uh, in the emergency department. So deciding on which intravenous iron um, you want to give, I think, really depends on the dose um, that you want to deliver, but also specifically on side effect profile. So um, there are recommendations that suggest that slower infusions uh, should be given to the following patients. So patients that are age over 65, patients that already have hypotension, because 1% to 2% may have a side effect of hypotension, patients with severe respiratory or cardiac disease, and patients that are on multiple antihypertensives, again concerned about hypotensive reactions. In these cases, we would run the Farahim, for example, more slowly, over 60 minutes, uh, but we typically keep the dose of iron sucrose over two hours. Okay, so the Farahim is the fastest, somewhere between 15 and 60 minutes, depending on their comorbidities, uh, whether they're hypotensive, etc. And the Venifer is over two hours, which contains less iron. That's right. Got it. And just to be clear, none of us have any conflicts of interest with either of these formulations. Clearly, you've got to consider the culture of your department, the culture of your hospital, and the custom of these two areas at any point in time. If you're working in some hospitals I work in, you can get IV iron in the emergency department, no problem at all. But if no one in your department has ever given iron, then you may have to do things differently. But let's face it, in many emergency departments in this country, particularly in smaller centers and maybe in some not-so-small centers, the emergency doctor is a de facto transfusionist. Things will be changing. To a large extent, we practice what we're familiar with. I think as our familiarity grows, our comfort in giving these medications is going to increase. My use of iron until 2014 was zero. I've given IV iron in the emergency departments four or five times. In fact, I've discovered I can get IV iron way quicker than I can get uh, imipenem or gentamicin these days. Or I would suspect a unit of blood. Way quicker than a unit of blood. In fact, I can get IV iron going within 60 minutes. A unit of blood takes hours. So this case we're talking about with a yoga instructor with a hemoglobin of 57. You can have the conversation with her, informed consent. You decide together she should get IV iron instead of the blood. You order the IV iron. It gets there within 60 minutes. You can give it over 15 minutes. You watch her for half an hour. She can go home. So we're talking maybe two hours in and out of the emergency department. That's right. And that compares to a blood transfusion where you would need to get the blood group and screen done. It would take the blood bank at least an hour to turn around that result. Then you would need to give the transfusion, which typically takes about two to three hours per unit. So you can see that IV iron is going to be a lot faster than giving a blood transfusion. Your ED administrators will be very happy with this. and went to the trouble of making a pre-printed order. So you, the eMERGE doc can just print it out, check off Venifer or Farahim, whichever one is best for the patient, sign it and hand it to the nurse to speed it up. And we have both intravenous iron formulations right in the cart. So everything is right there in the emergency department. We'll have that order set on the website for people to adapt for their departments if they'd like. We've talked about how to give IV iron. What about oral iron? Dr. Callum, let's say you're sending this patient home on oral iron from the ED. What are the specific drug options you have for PO iron, and how do you counsel the patient when giving them oral iron from the emergency department? 
So I think it's really important that when the patient goes home, they know exactly how to take their oral iron. And I think if you do good coaching, you're going to get good compliance. Uh, my first choice is to give ferrous sulfate. It's 300 milligram and contains 60 milligrams of elemental iron. I tell them to take it at bedtime on an empty stomach, at least two hours after food with a vitamin C tablet to maximize its absorption. One of the primary drivers of why I recommend ferrosulfate, it's just a really cheap tablet. I'm Scottish and I always go with the cheapest. You're talking about maybe $10 for three months of therapy. Giving more than one tablet per day really has never been shown to be more effective than a single tablet. I believe that the gut has a maximum absorption. You really can't absorb more than that degree of elemental iron. I learned in medical school when I started practicing, when I was doing family practice, that I was giving iron three times a day. And I remember when I did do family practice for a few years that three quarters of my patients just wouldn't take it. They were almost always non-compliant, it seemed. So you're saying that you can just give one tablet QHS? Yes. So we have very good evidence from the pregnancy literature that one tablet is good enough. There was a recent Cochrane review that showed that you're really maxed out at about 66 milligrams of elemental iron. Any additional dosages above that didn't result in a better hemoglobin at the time of delivery. We also have randomized trials in elderly general internal medicine type patients where they randomize patients to one tablet a day, two tablets a day versus three tablets a day. And at six weeks, there was no difference in the hemoglobin level and the dropout rate for non-compliance because of side effects was way lower with one tablet per day. So as Jeannie noted, iron absorption is really difficult. And it's not only food that can interfere with iron absorption, but also supplements. So for example, calcium and magnesium supplements also decrease iron absorption. So it's really important for iron tablets to be taken on their own with vitamin C on an empty stomach. Okay. So for all those uh, perimenopausal women like this one who have been advised by their family physicians to take vitamin D and calcium to prevent osteoporosis... There's a lot of people out there who are on calcium. It's important. There's a little minor detail. It's important to tell them to take their iron with vitamin C at night and then perhaps take their calcium in the morning. Okay, so now we have a little understanding of how to give IV iron. We have an understanding of how to give oral iron. Now I think it's important to understand how quickly are these things going to work. Dr. Callum, how fast does IV iron with ongoing oral iron supplementation fix the hemoglobin compared to a red cell transfusion. Okay, so after intravenous iron, you'll start to see the hemoglobin start to rise around three to seven days after the infusion. And after that, you'll get a one to two point rise in the hemoglobin every day. So that by two to four weeks after the intravenous iron infusion, the hemoglobin will have risen by about 20 to 30 grams per liter or two to three grams per deciliter. So just to drive home that point, IV iron given in the emergency department with oral iron supplementation for home can increase the hemoglobin anywhere from 20 to 30, even as high as 50 over about two to four weeks. And the hemoglobin will start to rise in three to seven days. So it's not as fast to start fixing the hemoglobin as a red cell transfusion, but it will increase the hemoglobin actually way more than a red cell trans than a single unit of red cells would, or even two units of red cells would over a few weeks. Absolutely. It's really important that the family physician know that unlike transfusions, intravenous iron takes time. They're not going to see a better hemoglobin when they check that blood count two days later. It's important that they check the hemoglobin in two weeks and then in four weeks to make sure it continues to go up. And at that point, we would decide, is oral iron now enough, or did they need additional dosages of intravenous iron? So we've definitely seen cases where patients come month after month for blood transfusion, and once it's recognized that they have iron deficiency, they get their doses of iron, and they actually improve, and they stop coming back to the emergency department for their monthly red cell transfusions. So I think it really highlights that giving iron is getting at the source of the problem, not just symptomatically fixing a number. Dr. Himmel, in episode 36, we talked about hemoglobin cutoffs for red cell transfusions for a variety of patients. 
Now, of course, there's many factors to take into consideration when deciding who needs a red cell transfusion that we discussed in that episode. But just to remind our listeners and give them a general idea, can you explain to our listeners your 60-100 rule for transfusion cutoffs? Okay, so here's my starting point. The patient is not getting blood. That's always my starting point. And we're talking about not massive transfusion protocols. With that, my starting point is the patient's getting 10 units of blood. So this is a whole different situation. Number one, almost nobody with chronic anemia ever needs blood with a hemoglobin over 100, possibly 90, almost nobody. Far 60 goes, under 60, most people are going to require probably a unit of blood unless they're relatively young, which means younger than me, I'm 63, and relatively healthy. So if they're pretty young and pretty healthy, I may go under 60. So the first rule is 60, 100. Most people under 60, unless they're really healthy, and nobody over 100, unless there's some really bizarre reason, and I can't imagine any bizarre reasons for giving these people blood. That's definitely where I start. The next question I say is, does this person have heart disease, angina? If they have heart disease, I might consider a blood transfusion for hemoglobin under 80. So those are, I think, some basic principles. The number of times over the last 15 years that I've been handed over patients just to repeat their hemoglobin or just watch out for side effects of, of uh, red cell transfusion, where it seems now that the indication for the red cell transfusion was way off base. I mean, it's, it's astronomical how many times that's happened. And to think about the resource utilization for all of those patients, just the fact that we're handing over a patient puts the patient at risk for more problems. So this really is sort of a revolutionary idea we're talking about here. Our 49-year-old woman with menorrhagia, the yoga instructor, she's iron deficient. That's not a diagnostic dilemma, and we don't need to do all kinds of tests to tell us that. However, sometimes it's not so obvious that a patient's anemia is because of iron deficiency. Can you remind our listeners of the simplest way to diagnose iron deficiency in the ED to help guide our decisions about iron transfusions? Okay, so here's how my brain reads the CBC. First thing is I look at the hemoglobin. Okay, it's low. Next, my eyes go directly to the MCV. If the MCV is under 85, I'm suspicious. Anything below 75, I know it's gross iron deficiency anemia. If the MCV is low, I next look at the RBC count to make sure it's low too. If you're anemic, you shouldn't have that many red cells. And also that the RDW is high. If all those are true, I know it's certainly iron deficiency. Okay, so that's just on your CBC that you're looking. You don't have to do any extra tests. I also look at the most recent ferritin. Almost certainly that woman or person with chronic anemia, the family physician has done multiple ferritins. And you already have in their record that they have a very low ferritin. And anything under 30 for the ferritin is gross iron deficiency. Or the ferritin under 100 with an iron saturation below 20% would be my trigger to say, absolutely, this is iron deficiency we need to treat with oral and or intravenous iron. Okay, so just to review that, you look at the hemoglobin, it's low. Then next you look at the MCV. If it's less than 75, it's almost for sure iron deficiency. If it's less than 85, you should be suspicious of, for iron deficiency. After the MCV, you then look at the RBC count. If that's low and the RDW count is high, then again, that's for sure iron deficiency. And if that's not giving you the answer, then you either look at an old ferritin that's below 30, that's iron deficiency, or you can order a ferritin in the emergency department. And if that's below 30, it's iron deficiency. You've got it. Don't be fooled by a normal MCV. A classic study done by Dr. Guyat from McMaster University showed that anemic patients, a quarter of them have a normal MCV but they still have gross iron deficiency. So sometimes you've got to go looking at the ferritin. Okay. And can you just go over, I don't want to confuse our listeners, but 
the one or two other really common causes of anemia that we would see in the emergency department and how that would look different on the CBC? So I think the most common mimic of iron deficiency would be either alpha or beta thalassemia, which is also very common. In this, you'll see the same thing. You'll look at the hemoglobin, it's low. In thalassemia, it's usually somewhere between 100 to 115. You look at the MCV, it's a lot lower than it usually is in iron deficiency, often in the 60s. But then when you go to look at the RBC count and the RDW, they're going to be different. You're going to see that the RBC count is actually high. You have an anemic patient with tons of red cells, and their RDW is going to be normal. Okay. So the difference then between iron deficiency and thalassemia is really the RBC count will be low in iron deficiency anemia and high in thalassemia, and the RDW count will be high in iron deficiency or normal or low in thalassemia. Correct. This is really big stuff. If you're practicing in Toronto today and probably San Francisco, you've got patients from the Mediterranean, from India from China, from all over the world, from Africa. In my opinion, if you're not diagnosing thalassemia in the emergency department once every two shifts, you're missing thalassemia. I have phenomenal number of patients who come in with hemoglobins of 95, 100, and 110. Their MCV is 65. Wow. But their red cell counts 5 million or 6 million. Hmm. They've got thalassemia minor, probably. I've asked them, has anyone told you you're anemic? And an occasional person will say, oh, yeah, I'm a thal minor carrier. But most don't even know it. Thalassemia minor in southern Ontario is phenomenally common. Well, I've missed a lot of thalassemia in the emergency department, that's for sure. (laughs) I think the other thing is, even though thalassemia is common, for sure, thalassemia and iron deficiency anemia coexist. So these women are of childbearing age. They come in, they're having menorrhagia. And so I think there's definitely a thought out there that patients with thalassemia should not get iron because they're worried about iron overload. And that does happen in patients with thalassemia major, for example. But in these patients with thalassemia minor who have iron deficiency, often the only way to know that is to do a ferritin. And often these patients do get treated with iron, either oral or IV, with really good benefit. Wow, that's a great pearl. So in the patient who has thalassemia and you suspect iron deficiency because they're bleeding, if you do a ferritin and it's low, you know that they have iron deficiency and you're safe to give them IV iron. Yes, you should go full speed ahead with giving iron therapy. In the ideal world, these patients would be picked up as an outpatient, and they would never come to the emergency department. But the reality is, they show up in the emergency department presenting with severe anemia, maybe symptoms and signs in some cases, or they've been sent there for help in terms of trying to diagnose why they're anemic in the first place. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. You know, a lot of these patients that are sent in by the family doctors, the fact that they're sent in by their family doctors with severe anemia assuming that the family doctor has been following them over the last year or two or three, that's an indication that the family doctor needs help. And I think that's part of our job as emergency physicians is to help them. I think receiving appropriate iron therapy really helps manage the patient. And I think then we educate the family physicians about other options that are available besides transfusion. I think it's clear that often the family physicians don't even have access to intravenous iron. And so sometimes they know that's an option, but because the anemia is so severe, these patients get sent to the emergency department. And just remember, this isn't the U.S. or the Canadian Army. Just because the note says transfuse two units, you don't have to follow commands. On to case number two. An 85-year-old man from a nursing home is sent in for his, quote, usual red cell transfusion that he's been receiving monthly for the past four months. He does complain of fatigue, but no other symptoms. In particular, he has no chest pain, no shortness of breath, no palpitations, no dizziness, and no melina. He's got a history of CHF and chronic renal failure with a baseline creatinine of 170. His hemoglobin comes back at 65. So what are your thoughts on this case? 
This is probably something that you guys see every day in the emergency department. It's a classic older patient coming in. And I think the first issue is just trying to figure out why this patient might have anemia. And just at first glance at that short stem, there are a number of reasons why that patient might have anemia. So we can look at perhaps occult causes of bleeding in terms of iron deficiency. But probably more importantly, this patient has anemia of chronic disease. And when I say that, it means that there's an anemia of inflammation due to multiple core morbidities. And as well, he probably has anemia secondary to his underlying renal dysfunction. So when you look at all of those components, it does become really hard to sort out which patients should we be giving IV iron to. So anemia in the elderly population is extremely common. Somewhere over 10% of patients have anemia. And it always breaks down to, in studies, into a one-third, one-third, one-third distribution. One-third of patients have a simple nutritional deficiency. Most of those are iron deficiency. Some of them are B12 deficiency. The next one-third is anemia of chronic disease. There's an underlying illness that's causing what we call iron lockdown. They're unable to absorb or recycle their iron in the bone marrow. And the other third fall into an unexplained category. I'm sure if they were investigated extensively, you would find the cause of that anemia, but in the studies, they just did some simple investigations and then classified them as unexplained. This is a common problem. We see this all the time. There's some patients coming in for transfusions. So I think you got a choice. The traditional approach is give them two units and send them home in about 12 hours. And if you want to do that, that's not cool anymore. So I've got two questions. Do they need blood and do they need iron? They're two different questions. So in spite of about not giving blood unless you're hemoglobin under 60, if you're 85 years of age and you've got multiple comorbidities, they probably need some blood and probably one unit. As far as the iron deficiency issue goes, or the reason for the anemia, you've got a choice. You can arrange a follow-up and someone else can figure it out. That might not be realistic for nursing home patients. It really might not be. Or you can decide you're going to check for yourself if they're iron deficient based on diet. And of course, what 85-year-old isn't taking aspirin or clopidogrel or cyclotaneous heparin? I mean, iron deficiency is a big deal. So what do I personally think about doing is probably give a unit of blood in this case. And if no one's ever done it, my current view of my role here is to see if they have iron deficiency anemia. And this is one case where a couple of particular tests are very relevant. So I personally get very confused when I see someone has a history of anemia of chronic disease. I'm not really, under, I'm not really sure exactly what that means. And then I'm not really sure how to determine whether those people are iron deficient as well. I mean, my understanding is that some of those people are iron deficient and some of them aren't. So this podcast is all about giving iron to patients in the emergency department. How do we know whether these patients need iron or not? And which patients with anemia with chronic disease require iron? And anemia of chronic disease, we know there might be a component of what we call functional iron deficiency. So in those cases, total body iron stores are actually normal. But because of inflammation or the chronic disease, the iron is not available to the red cells to be used to make more red cells. And we classify those patients as having functional iron deficiency. And so in those patients, in that subset of patients, we think that intravenous iron might be helpful. And really the only way to pick up those patients is to do a serum ferritin. And we typically look at a ferritin less than 100 with a transferrin saturation less than 20%. And transferrin is the carrier protein for iron molecules. And the transferrin saturation really just looks at how much iron transferrin, the transporter, is carrying. And so if that's low, it gives us this idea that functional iron deficiency is present. So I tell you what I've done in the past year, and I'm sort of euphoric about this. When I see these patients, I get a serum ferritin. Now, from our previous discussion, we basically know if someone's a pretty healthy person and the serum ferritin is under 30, they're iron deficient, period. But here's the caveat. If they are chronically ill, their serum ferritin may be high and they could still be iron deficient. So what you do is real simple and real beautiful. They got multiple comorbidities, you get a serum ferritin, it's more than 30, maybe 40, 50, 60, but they're still anemic. Because they have multiple illnesses, 
they could have anemia of chronic disease. So now you have to move into one more test, and that's called a transferrin saturation. What you do is this. Chronic disease, multicorbidities, get a serum ferritin. If it's 10 or 20, they're iron deficient. If it's 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, in this particular case, get a transferrin saturation. And if it's 20% or less, whatever they have, they also have iron deficiency. And now you know someone has got to consider giving them iron. So while we're not hematologists, what we can figure out in most of the patients that are in the emergency department is if they're iron deficient or not. We don't have to know exactly what the cause of their anemia. It could be multiple causes. Really what we want to concentrate on is are they iron deficient or not? Patients with anemia with chronic disease can be iron deficient. And the way we figure that out, just as Dr. Lin and Dr. Himmel just described, by getting a serum ferritin, if that's low, under 30, we know they're iron deficient. If it's more than 30, we need a transfer in saturation. And if that's less than 20%, then they're iron deficient and they may be a candidate for IV iron in the emergency department. And I'll tell you, in the hospitals I work, I just put down the words iron studies. And believe it or not, I get a serum iron, a transferrin, a transferrin saturation, and a ferritin bang. I think it's really important that you guys stop this kind of cycle of transfusion for these patients and send them on for further care. What you're doing is you're just starting them now on the right path. You make a referral to someone who's going to take on the chronic care. And that's what we really do in our hematology clinic. I take those patients. I do regular blood work on them. When they become iron deficient again, I give them additional dosages of IV iron. If the IV iron alone doesn't work, we start other therapies. So we keep them out of the emergency department and we don't use blood when we have other alternative therapies. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound ridiculous, but I'm going to anyways. I've got a dream here. We've stopped doing CT in four-year-olds who are perfectly fine. Let's consider stop giving two units of blood to every 80-year-old patient nursing home who arrives with a note every month. I think that's ridiculous. Dr. Callum, when we discharge patients from the ED, we need to tell them what to expect when they follow up in the hematology clinic or the internal medicine clinic and how long they'll be on IV iron or PO iron or what's going to happen to them. When these patients follow up with you in your clinic, generally speaking, what can they expect for ongoing management of their anemia? Okay. In terms of long-term follow-up for their iron deficiency anemia, there are two things that have to be figured out. One is why are they iron deficient? And if it's from bleeding, how are we going to get the bleeding to stop? And second, how long do they need to be on the iron therapy? So when they go home, there always has to be follow-up for the iron deficiency. When they get to our clinic, most of the time we can just continue them on oral iron and they don't need any additional dosages of intravenous iron. Occasionally, they're not tolerating the oral iron, they had a really severe anemia, and we'll give an additional dosage of intravenous iron. In terms of long-term on the oral iron, most patients need to be on it for at least six months of oral iron. Okay, so in terms of what you're going to counsel your patient when you discharge them from the emergency department, you need to tell them first that it'll take a few weeks for their hemoglobin to get back up to normal. Second, that they'll need to be on oral iron for several months, that they may require another IV dose of iron if they can't tolerate the oral iron or if they have severe anemia and that they might need some further investigations for the cause of their iron deficiency anemia. And I think if the follow-up is good, the patient's not going to bounce back to the emergency department with another episode of severe iron deficiency anemia, if we can get that right. Now, that being said, there is a reality here we should touch on because it happens all the time. We see a lot of patients from nursing homes who've got care that's less than amazing. They've got mild or moderate dementia, and there's an unbelievably high likelihood they're never going to get follow-up with a hematologist, and they're never going to go to a clinic because getting this demented person to a clinic just ain't going to happen. I usually dictate notes or write notes saying, please consider ongoing iron supplementation or investigation. 
I think we're actually seeing quite a change in practice over time. And, you know, the TRIC trial was in 1999. It was 15 years ago. But when we start to look at blood utilization in Ontario and Canada in the U.S., it's actually on the downward swing when everybody was predicting that it was going to go up because our population is aging, getting older, getting sicker, needing more transfusions. But it's actually on the decline. And I think that's because there is this whole concept of patient blood management as well as restrictive transfusion that is infiltrating into all the different specialties and cultures around the world. So I think it's something that's slowly changing. And I think hopefully with this podcast, we're actually influencing Emerge Docs to start considering being part of that change. On to our final case. An 82-year-old woman lost her balance at home and fell in her bathroom. She landed on her right hip. She was unable to get up from the floor. She comes into your ED via ambulance, and the EMS crew note that she has a shortened, externally rotated right leg. She had a history of diabetes, hypothyroidism, hypertension, and elevated cholesterol. In the ED, she gets an iliofemoral nerve block for pain control and screening blood work. Her hemoglobin comes back at 83. You pursue the old chart to find out that her previous hemoglobin was 85, and she has a history of B12 deficiency anemia for which she's non-compliant with her medication. The only symptoms that she has that could be attributable to her anemia are fatigue and shortness of breath on exertion, which has been unchanged for months. She has no chest pain, no orthostatic drop, and no signs of congestive heart failure. Orthopedics is consulted, and they request that you give the patient two units of red cells in preparation for the OR. So Dr. Callum, what would you say to the orthopedic surgeon in response to his request for two units of red cells for this patient? Okay, so I think this is a really common problem, but I think we have actually the best evidence that we don't need to transfuse this patient. Some people think that the TRIC trial was the most important randomized trial in transfusion, but I think it was the FOCUS trial. The FOCUS trial took over 2,000 patients who presented to the emergency department with a spontaneous hip fracture. They had to be over the age of 50. The median age was 82. They had to either have multiple coronary risk factors or have cardiac disease. And they got randomized to either a transfusion trigger of 80 versus 100. Well, so these were pretty sick patients, actually. They either had coronary disease or multiple comorbidities. Absolutely. Okay. Their primary outcome was 60-day mortality or inability to walk independently. But they also tracked multiple other outcomes. And what they found was there was absolutely no difference. But if you looked at mortality rates at 30 days and 90 days, they were numerically less in the less transfused group for the under 80. So I think we know for sure that this patient does not need a blood transfusion unless she has clear symptoms from that anemia. So let me get this straight. So even patients who have known coronary disease, who are 85 years old, if they have a hemoglobin of 82 and they're going to the operating room, they do not need a blood transfusion. Unless they have clear concerning symptoms of that anemia, tachycardia, hypotension, presyncope, something of a concern. Okay, so we've established that this patient doesn't need a red cell transfusion in the emergency department before they go to the OR. What do they need? There have been some studies looking at intravenous iron given either a couple days before the hip fracture or the day before and a couple days after, showing that there may be some benefit to reducing blood transfusions. Now, they're not randomized trials, but they're observational studies suggesting that there might be some benefit. So in the hopefully rare event that the patient's hip surgery is going to be delayed, I mean, we, we know from the orthopedic literature that the longer you wait to operate on someone's hip, the worse the outcome. But the realities of a busy hospital are sometimes the patient has to wait for 24 hours to get their hip surgery. I guess it would be reasonable then to consider IV iron in this kind of patient. If you knew for sure that there was, for example, a ferritin less than 30, then I think it would be an option, um, especially in cases where you anticipate that there's going to be a delay in surgery. Okay. I'm a little bit confused here, though, because we had just been talking about how it takes several days for the hemoglobin to improve when you give IV iron. 
So if they're going to be getting their hip surgery in 24 hours or 48 hours, that isn't enough time for their hemoglobin to rise up before the surgery. So what's the explanation there? So interestingly, if we look at orthopedic surgery and hip fractures, most of the drop in the hemoglobin is post-op day two, three. So they don't actually often need a transfusion intraoperatively, but post-operatively. So the idea is if there is sufficient delay until the surgery, there may in fact actually be some time for that IV iron to have an effect. Now, I'm not sure that I'm actually recommending that we should give all patients who come to the emergency department with anemia and hip fractures IV iron, but I think it's just one more thing thing to think about um, in the management of these patients. I think we used to have this rule that you had to have a hemoglobin of 100 to go to the operating room. And that is a, I don't know, 19th century rule. It's not even a 21st century rule. And I think everybody needs to know that that rule does not exist and you don't need a hemoglobin of 100 to go to the operating room. We have the focus trial that specifically shows us that we don't. So let's flip this on its head for a minute. We've been talking about when to give IV iron and the evils of red cell transfusion. Now, I don't want to mislead our listeners. Dr. Callum, when are red cell transfusions absolutely necessary and likely life-saving? In other words, what, generally speaking, are the indications for red cell transfusions in the ED as opposed to watchful waiting or iron treatments? Okay, so I think the bulk of the transfusions that happen in the ED are going to fall into one of four types of patients. The first one is a patient with a major hemorrhage. Transfusions are going to happen irrespective of that baseline hemoglobin. Transfusions will be based on the blood loss, the degree of shock, their initial response to intravenous fluids. And the classic patient in this category is either the trauma patient or someone with a variceal bleed. The second category of patient is the one with the moderate hemorrhage. And the classic patient in this would be maybe somebody with a GI bleed. In this category, we try to keep the hemoglobin just above 70 or just above 80 for patients with cardiovascular disease. And there's really good evidence for this. A trial was published in the New England Journal in 2013 that showed that keeping the hemoglobin just above 70 resulted in less re-bleeding and a lower mortality rate. The third category are those patients with a chronic iron deficiency that, without symptoms that we've been talking about today. No one knows how low these patients can go, but we use 50 at our institution to determine who needs a transfusion. And lastly, there are those patients that present with chronic anemia to the ED. They're non-bleeding. They're not chronic iron or B12 deficiency. These are often the patients coming from the nursing home. Uh, These are the patients that we use those classic triggers of less than 90 if they have clear symptoms of anemia, less than 80 if they have cardiac disease, and less than 70 for the rest of the patients. Wow, that's great. We'll have those indications for red cell transfusions in the written summary. I think it's good to think about what the indications are for red cell transfusions, what the indications are for iron transfusions. And there's, of course, going to be a few cases that are in the gray area, That's the time when you should try and get your hematologist or your internist on the phone. We've got two of the leaders of transfusion medicine who literally write the guidelines for transfusion medicine in Canada. What, in your opinion, is the future of the diagnosis and management of iron deficiency anemia in the ED and in the community? Sort of in the short-term picture, we're actually working really hard to try to come up with quality improvement processes to try to prevent inappropriate transfusion for iron deficiency anemia in the ED. So we have a uh, working group working closely with the Sunnybrook ED, looking at coming up with guidelines uh, that we've drafted to look at who we should be transfusing, who we should be giving IV iron to, and who we should be giving oral iron to, pre-printed orders for IV iron, patient pamphlets for patients on IV iron, as well as oral iron discharge instruction letters for eMERGE docs to communicate with the family docs with the hopes that we will disseminate this and bring it to other hospitals. We need to allow family physicians, patients to have access to intravenous iron therapy in the community and make it widely available. We do have more new brands of intravenous iron that are coming that will allow physicians to give total dose infusions, a gram of iron over 15 to 60 minutes, which will dramatically improve access for these patients. And the second thing is, similarly to what we've been able to do with stroke prevention clinics, bring in an anemia management clinic. 
this has already been done in the United Kingdom. They have anemia clinics where family physicians, emergency docs can refer their patients, and they've been able to show a dramatic reduction in transfusion and better quality of care. And I think that's where we need to go in North America. Now, just to wrap it up, it's my understanding that, in fact, there's studies out there that if you improve the iron deficiency of the population in general, that they'll actually have better cognitive function. What's that all about? So this is one of my favorite topics. So in women, there's a whole literature on this. If your ferritin's under 50, even though your hemoglobin's normal, if you're randomized in trials to get iron compared to the placebo tablet, you have an improvement in your cognitive function. Similarly, they've done studies with something that you can Google. It's called the Tower of London test, where you have to move little bubbles on wooden posts into a different position. And they time how fast women can do that test. And they find that women that are iron deficient are dramatically slower in their cognitive function, just even doing a simple test. So we have an incredible way to improve the cognitive function of the general population with iron supplementation. If you look at women, the median ferritin of women in studies runs around 45. That means that more than half of women are performing suboptimally in terms of their cognitive function. So, wow, guys out there, you better watch out. If they get hold of this information, they could start taking iron supplementation and take over the world. <laughs> 